Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone, I am back with another devlog for Umbral Dive. Uh, so thanks for listening to this one, if this is the last one. Uh, quick shout out to a person over on Twitter who mentioned that the uh, repeating lo-fi music was a little distracting uh, under the context of my voice, so... Uh, we will not be having that underneath. Uh, so thank you for letting me know. I'm happy to increase any ability to engage with the podcast at a moment's notice. So who am I if this is the first thing that you're listening to on the podcast? My name is Jeremy Gage. I'm designing a what I would like to call an updated traditional adventure skirmish role-playing game. Uh, akin to your D&Ds and your Pathfinders and your other trad RPGs with skill systems like Pendragon and Numenera and many others. Uh, you can find me at JeremyGH5 over on Twitter. You can continue to listen to the Draw Your Dice podcast. You can check all this content along with articles that I'll be making over on HaveYouPlayedThis.com where me and my uh, buddy Adam Bell are making cool info for games. So there's that. Cool. So let's get into today's devlog. Uh, mostly the next couple ones will be a sort of getting up to date on where the current state of all the systems and designs for the game stand. 
and then looking at a documentation of how I adjust those things going forward. So last time I talked about some of the shortcomings that I've had with traditional adventure RPGs. And today I want to talk about some of the steps that I'm doing and some of the techniques that I'm using to adjust those things for a game that I want to run and I want to play. And I think will also elevate the genre overall. Uh, you know, that's kind of a pompous thing to potentially say, but you know, I have, you know, if you don't see it in the world, make it right. So that's what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, so today I'll be talking about the battle design system, uh, for what I've pet named the amplify system overall or systems or the amplify machine. I don't know. It's got a lot of pet names, but anyways, um, Let's start with D&D 5th edition here and the why. So one of the big drawbacks I have with D&D 5th edition is how it structures turn order, how it structures combat. Um, It uses a bucketing system of rounds, go into turns, go into actions, essentially. So for every round, a character will have one turn that has three action types available to them, being a main action, a bonus action, and a reaction, in addition to movement on their turn. In the verisimilitude of the game, this round transpires over six seconds. This is my first disconnect with how the game is built. I think that that duration of round is also to allow the coupling of role-playing systems, a la skill systems, engaging with skills or attacks outside of combat in the fictional world. And I can see the um, advantages to having that. But when it comes down to playing the game... Uh, engaging with the game mechanically, I think there's just a tiny bit of disconnect from what's going on on the field versus each player's turn. So rounds go over six seconds, but each player or each character that the player drives has their sort of own six-second parallel universe version of those six seconds. So it's not really that you're operating at the same six seconds. It's like you're operating at uh, different six seconds intervals. And you might be asking, Jeremy, why the fuck do I care about this? Uh, Why the fuck do you care about this? Uh, I care about this because when I imagine a combat, and I think about my favorite animes, my favorite uh, cartoons, or even like movies that have like really long battle sequences, you need, I think you need to capture that feeling of it's all happening at one time. And especially in anime, there's always like this exchange and then plan and exchange and plan, exchange of blows, plan your next moves. You're sort of like regrouping in different ways, either by couples or by whole groups. You know, you're all pushed back to back. You're like, let's switch. I'll take this one. You take that one. Um, And that's not doable in that style of turn order. 
I mentioned in the first devlog that um, turn order was really the thing that people are looking to solve when they're trying to make a faster combat. A lot of the tools we see out there are different ways to get into initiative and also to manipulate initiative. But uh, the core root of the issue for me is the turn order structure. One player goes, then another player goes, and another character goes, and another character goes, and everyone gets their turn like in a board game. So what I've opted to do uh, is move into two uh, mechanics known as interlevied turns and programming mechanics. So interlevied turns means that everyone goes at the same time. Uh, this Examples of this are like Magic the Gathering, how there are different phases uh, inside of a turn that each player can operate on depending on the limitations of their cards. So, you know, you have your untap step where everyone untaps stuff and either player could play cards uh, given that the opponent has an instant or an active, an activatable ability like a mana ability or a tap ability that they can use on top of that. So that's the restriction. There's certain cards that can't be played outside of your own personal turn, but when priority is passed to the opponent, they can play things in response. So for me, I want combat to feel like everyone, like a bunch of stuff is happening at the exact same time. So I'm looking to use interlevied turns and phases. So I've built my own phase structure for the game, which I'll get into in a second. And uh, the second mechanic that I'm using is programming. Um, I first stumbled across this mechanic in a game called Mechs and Minions, made by Riot Games. Um, essentially how it works is that everyone will have some sort, uh, regardless of the game, I think, uh, you will have some sort of board uh, in front of you that is numbered from one direction to another, typically left to right. And you will place excuse me, particular markers, tokens, cards, or write something down where either on one end of the extreme you've uh, placed hiddenly, like no one else knows what you placed, or you do it in collaboration, everyone sort of places together, but you'll place those actions along that sequence. And then once everyone has placed that sequence, you will then start the round engaging on each of those slots one at a time, but everyone's actions are happening simultaneously via the game world. So for instance, if I had two players who were playing in a programming game and my first action would be to attack and their first action would be to move, uh, then those things would happen simultaneously. And maybe the game has additional rules for like, like a rock, paper, scissors things where like movement uh, overcomes attacking and thus you missed. Or, um, you know, an, a different version of that is that attacking always happens first. So then you can move and then you're in a different position, but you still take damage and didn't defend. Just sort of like as a, as a basic structure for that. So in Umbral Dive's combat, Essentially, what happens is that you have a tactics board in front of you that has six circles on it, numbered one through six. Uh, those account to the seconds in combat. 
a la D&D 5e. So I think it's an easy sort of concept to start grasping with there. So you have your one through six seconds. Um, and as the round starts, uh, the enemies who also have the GM, who also has a tactics board in front of them, will place um, due to the stat block of the particular set of enemies and how they arrange themselves on the board. Um, they will place markers or signifiers on their tactic sport of like, when is this enemy going and what is it doing? Is it attacking? Is it moving? Et cetera, et cetera. So that's called the faux declaration step. Uh, the GM places all their tokens. They showcase that board, that program that is going to happen to the players. So then the players use that information to decide their actions that they're going to take. Now you might be saying, well, Jeremy, this might create a solved game. That's true. But where, uh, and I'll get into this later, is the complexity of the game, I think, is where things are going to create a little bit more of an RNG or uncertainty element, along with many other um, class design um, pieces. But that's essentially what I'm doing to combat the turn order. Um, in addition to that, I am kind of taking inspiration from Blades in the Dark's position and effect system. I'm not necessarily using position and effect, but I'm using the idea of it. So how I have always thought of position and effect is position represents what the fiction can do to your character in any given moment. Um, the reason why you might be in, if you're unfamiliar, um, there are three positions in Blades in the Dark. There are sort of like fictional positioning tools. There's controlled, risky, and desperate. And so those represent how your character stands to engage in the fiction with a particular action. So if I were to skirmish against a brick wall to break it down, like if I were just wholesale brick wall with like a little dagger, my position would probably be desperate. There's a really good chance that I break that dagger, hurt myself in the process, waste time, there's a lot of different variables that you and uh, you and the rest of the table can discuss in that moment. So I'm use I'm converting it into sort of a momentum system, which will decide sequential turn orders in each programming. So um, this is the second sort of style of turn order known as sequential turn order, which D and D uses. One person goes after the other. In this case, we're using the groups uh, going one before the other. Your momentums are controlled, risky, and desperate. And as you engage with the enemy, you may gain or lose momentum. And the momentum track basically says who goes first in a second, players or foes. If you're in a controlled momentum, then the players lead. They essentially have the initiative, right? Quote unquote, the initiative. And they get to operate their programming first, which is usually advantageous because if you can eliminate an enemy, that prevents them from going, which is sort of an action economy thing, et cetera, et cetera. Or they may be able to stun before an enemy goes, things like that. If you're in a risky position or momentum, you will have to roll off each second to see who goes. Uh, that's sort of like a basic idea, but there'll be some sort of like uncertainty mechanic attached here where you can see each second do foes operate 
their actions first or do the players operate their actions first in a program's second? And then desperate position, uh, foes will operate first each second. So they'll get to take all their actions before the players get to take their actions. However, uh, I will be sort of thinking about a tide turner mechanic, which can like get your momentum back or uh, allow you to sort of like circumvent that rule because I wanted to lean a little bit in the player's favor because it's sort of taking like epic storytelling or, or hero storytelling or something like that. And just, you know, putting it in the favor of the players. But that means that they have to operate the battlefield correctly and they have to um, fight desperately to claw their way back up the momentum. So just as a recap for fixing turn order in D&D and the steps that I'm taking, I want to eliminate fixed turn order by introducing phased combat, where using programming mechanics, we've all pre-selected our actions, and then we watch our little character robots go on the battlefield. And they operate from second to second. There may be certain uh, conditions or actions that would prevent other ones. So maybe you're doing a melee attack on second four, but someone pushed you away on second three, and that attack may miss in that case. Um, just examples of how that can sort of be changed up on the battlefield. Um, the second thing uh, is the battlefield. So the uh, the battlefield, I feel, I've always felt like the grid is kind of stifling on two fronts. Like gridded combat is stifling on two fronts. One, it doesn't feel organic enough to me. And two, it kind of makes a mess of like any immersive tools you bring to the table, like maps or something. Because when you have a square that like splits a wall, a GM may rule it differently every time. You might have. Um, yeah, you can go into that square. You're just like really pressed up against the wall or no, you can't go into that square because your whole mini can't quote unquote fit in there fictionally. So it creates a little bit of like weird space. So what I've opted to do is actually take from war games and use ruler movement. So, uh, you know, in Umbral Dive, you'll have to get a ruler or a measuring tape or whatever you want to use string you could use like cut pieces of string sticks uh anything really and you'll be able to move around the battlefield in that capacity so uh additionally umbral dive will provide um i think there are some DD tools out there like cones and circle shapes and stuff but spell or area of effect shapes uh that will be applied but you can also use inches to determine how big an area is or something like that. And it'll be like whole or half inches. It won't be anything smaller than that, just because that can get really fiddly. Um, and it matters because of how I do, how I want to do enemy design, but that'll come in a later devlog. This is pretty focused on like the combat player facing side of things. So, a lot of this is really a line that I have written here on the document I'm looking at, which says less handheld tactics, more console tactics. So um, what that means is getting sort of away from like, you know, Game Boy Advance style, like 
Final Fantasy Tactics stuff, or um, there's a game called Disgaea, which is uh, a pretty good example of like what I consider a handheld tactic game. Just at the limitation, not the limitations, because we're in a day and age where like there are no limitations in in certain game tools, but something just doesn't feel as like chess like as uh, maybe like more fighting game or MMORPG or action RPG is kind of what I'm aiming for. In fact, a lot of the systems I have in the game is, are heavily influenced by um, games like Guilty Gear, um, Final Fantasy XIV, Guild Wars II, God of War, Doom 2016, just in how they approach combat design. Uh, this also has a sort of like secret internal want to make a spectacle like devil may cry style rpg as well so maybe we'll get that in here maybe all those ideas will come to one so that's sort of getting a more organ though both of those things together the manipulation of the turn order through programming and phases and the switch from gridded combat to ruler movement while maybe more fiddly uh for some people is in my opinion creates a more organic combat simulator or hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even a more like spectacle... Cause you may dodge by that like sweet quarter inch or something like that. Like you don't have to worry about your mini being in a square that's half affected and then saying like, Oh, that's like in range. It hits me. Like you can really make the precision call of am I in it or am I not? Uh, and kind of removes the guesswork from that. And again, that's going to be different from GM to GM. 
Because you might say, oh, well, if it's half in, then my mini could also potentially be half out. Uh, and that's, you know, I don't know. That's just a thing some people may care about. I don't know if I care about that, but I care about it enough to change it in this game. Uh, the next sort of thing, which sort of ties into the momentum mechanic earlier, is I want there to be a really big focus on how the party is doing in a fight. I want the individual abilities and character health, whatever form that takes, to matter. But I want the party stuff to matter more. And this is inspired by stuff like the Blades in the Dark crew sheets. Um, it's inspired by um, Aegon's second edition contest mechanics. Like how everyone participates in a trial and then everyone's awarded certain points and they can flow off of that. So I want to use um, sort of this idea that you're stronger together as a party, but you're also slower together. Because I also want to incentivize split the party style mechanics or methods in play. So time will be a big part of this game, which I'll talk about later in a different devlog. But basically the idea is if you're exploring a dungeon and your party is maneuvering together, you're probably more likely to solve any challenge in front of you. Um, you can all push on the door. You can all put your heads together to get across the ravine. You can all put your heads together to solve a puzzle or something like that. Um, but that's going to take, um, that's putting all of your resources into one basket. Where in this game, in Umbral Dive, I'm looking to also put sort of like a, a pressure cooker situation in the game. Because um, the idea is that dungeons are actually um, memories, like big hologram memories that operate during a specific amount of time. So this like whole memory may play out over 10 minutes or something. Um, and then it resets if you can't get there in time. So it's this idea of like, you can do the sure thing and have all the party do a skill challenge or whatever and get through that. Or you can split the party, sort of weakening your rolls or your dice pools or whatever. But then you could take on two challenges at a time. You could do three and one. You could do two and two. You could do one to four different challenges or something like that. Um, and... I think that's one way of doing it on the RP level. And then the other way is, again, that momentum mechanic I mentioned earlier. That's sort of a... Like a did you pass the mechanic or not style of system. So in for, for example, in Final Fantasy XIV, when you fight harder bosses or raids... Um, you have to do the gimmick or do the mechanic that's pre presenting for you. Something like a, um, an example is a stack marker, which is a mechanic where the damage is split depending on the number of players in the stack marker. Um, so it might do like 100k to one player or it might do 20k to five players or whatever. And then a different scenario of that is spread markers, where um, individual attacks on targeted players may do like 30k damage, and if you overlap those, then both those players are going to take 60k damage, and so on and so forth, if more people stack. And it's about combining those things. So you may have 
one stack marker and three spread markers go out onto an eight person party and those three have to run away and the other five have to group together to block this mechanic. And they mean they, it's important to denote that it's only be, being split five ways instead of eight ways, just as sort of like put pressure on the party and figuring out the puzzle that is the fight. So the momentum system is a way to say like, uh, your enemy is now engaging in like a gimmick style mechanic, not necessarily like a non-targeted ability. Think of it like a fireball or a lightning bolt and everyone has to dodge it. And if anyone doesn't dodge it, you lose momentum uh, because it's putting sort of like morale pressure on everyone and they have to care about you and um, put resources into you. And then there will still be like individual health and stuff. So you can't like just keep going off of strictly grouped momentum. Although there is a version of this game where the party could share one giant health bar. But I think that would detract from class design things that I want to do in the future. So I still want the individual to matter, but I want the party to matter more than the individual. And I think that's really important. Uh, other thing that uh, I find disingenuous about D&D 5e is progression. So in the scheme of its design, I ask you this question. What is the difference numerically between a goblin and a dragon? If you have party members, uh, if you have players who are of an equal level or challenge rating um, specifically to that creature. If you don't know the math of D&D 5e, the short answer is not really too much. The only difference between the goblin and the dragon is action economy complexity. Um, as far as numbers go, if you were to put a properly leveled party against either the goblin or the dragon, numbers-wise, they will be the same fight because D&D um, 5th edition has a battle design philosophy that most combats should last about three rounds if played on average optimally. Like, uh, I don't mean like min-max optimally. I mean like if the fighter is able to take all three of their attacks and use their action action surge or something like that uh, and dish out the damage that they're supposed to do within three rounds based on their abilities, then uh, that dragon fight should be over in three rounds, a la some other variables. Um, now, there's a conversation about like player optimization, party optimization, player skill at the table, what actions are you selecting, what actions are the dragon selecting, but numerically, progression is sort of a lie in D&D 5th edition because you're always adjusting the DCs for the party as well um, because you can't, if you go by the standards of um, of like there's a table in the book that says like, oh, a DC 5 is very easy and DC 10 is easy and 15 is like standard and et cetera, et cetera. You're sort of always wanting to push that DC to a level that still feels um, challenging at a probability rate as related to the D20 and its bonuses, right? You could have a level, I don't, I don't know, 
level 15 rogue with goddamn plus 13 stealth and you set the DC to 15, there's like a 90% chance they're going to make that roll because all they have to roll is like a three or something. So why have them engage in that role? And then you might say like, oh, well, the DC is 27. Oh, but there's just like a bunch of, I don't know, automatons. I could probably stealth around that. So DC is just like a funny thing and progression is weird in the game. And I've never really been like a fan of the level up concept, but what it does is onboard complexity. So I don't think the game will have a progression system, but I do think that it's class design and it's, system designs are going to be more geared towards like card game progression in a way you sort of like build the complexity you want to see in the game. So this is, there's inspiration of this from like legends of Runeterra, magic, the gathering slay. The spire is a really big example of this where you sort of like progress by building your skills, seeing synergies, grouping cards together to create combos or special effects. And so um, that's sort of the style of progression slash class design that I want to go to is really focusing on like building your own complexity and tailoring your table's skill level on like tiers of complexity. So if your group just wants like I don't know, easy going combat with like a few options to pick from, do like a tier one play, right? And that's not like tier one means the game is, you like you have less options for difficulty. Like tier one play in D&D means you potentially never fight a dragon, you know, uh, mono and mono. But uh, in this, I'd want you to have like all the options available to you of enemies that you could fight and they could be scaled up and down depending on number of players and tier level. Uh, or if you want like a wider variety of, you know, quote unquote cards or abilities to pick from, you could do tier four play and really like mix and match abilities, pull from other um, roles or classes or something like that, and kind of cobble a multi-class situation together. So that's sort of the, the third Third thing, fourth thing, progression. I think progression is sort of a lie and I'm more apt to think about progression as complexity. Another reason I think about think about this in general is I think about Metroidvanias and how in Super Metroid or Castlevania, I guess there's a little bit of level up in there, Hollow Knight, the character never really levels up. They never get quote unquote experience points to level up. Instead, as they explore the narrative and the setting around them, they gain additional tools to solve problems. Uh, Legend of Zelda also does this. And so that's the design attempt I want to do is that as you play the game and you need different tools to solve different problems or have different tools to maybe solve a problem more efficiently. I think that's where my progression lies is the unlock of tools, not necessarily the unlock of numbers. I don't want my game to scale with numbers. I want it to scale with how you manipulate or allocate certain resources, abilities, dice, etc. So that's my, that's my progression.
sort of the last bit here, because this is going a little bit longer than usual, uh, is the class design. Like I mentioned, it's going to be very card game uh, inspired. And additionally, I want to make dice pools feel really cool. So I'm using a dice allocation system. So if you can imagine with me on that same tactics board I mentioned earlier, just to recap on the bottom of the board, it's maybe like a envelope sized board. You have the numbers one through six where you place actions down. And at the top of this tactics board, you have dice slots that say offense, defense, um, and uh, potency. And you can allocate dice to those slots. So offense has two slots, defense has one slot, and um, potency has one slot as well. Uh, for the role system, there are five roles in the game. This is inspired from D&D 4th edition where you had roles like um, striker and defender, controller, and leader, which was sort of like a support style um, class principle. So in my role system, I have five roles. There's warden, which is your tank, vanguard, which is your physical damage, melee or range dealer, synergist, which is like your healer or buffer, jammer, which is like your curse and debuffer, um, and then, and sort of like controller, and then ravager, which is your magic damage, um, either melee or ranged option as well. So basically, when a round starts, you'll declare what role you're going to be engaging in. This is kind of thinking about job switching from Final Fantasy games. So one round, you might say, oh, I'm going to do the warden role. Uh, and what that means is that when you engage in this round and you roll your dice, uh, certain dice or certain slots or certain abilities may get bonuses depending on the hat you're wearing for that round. The other reason I want to do it this way is that I want people to be able to create a little bit more of a out-of-the-box style role. So when I say the role warden, you might open up and think tank. And you might think like paladin, knight, um, barbarian. But I also want you to be able to do warden stuff as a rogue or as an archer. Like, what does it mean to be a warden, right? It means, at least for me, it means sort of like to control the attention on the battlefield and the positioning of enemies. And so an archer can certainly do that by throwing out some covering fire that forces or, or that prevents the advance of enemies. A rogue can do that just instead of blocking with a shield. They dodge every attack that's thrown at them. Um, and this should be true of all the roles and sort of like the class packages that you can take on for the game. Um, but you'll form your role dice pool, which is, uh, I'll get into in a, in deeper explanation in a different episode. Um, but that's all to create a more where complexity is the 
progression, not numbers is the progression. So you can take as much of that system as you want or leave it, making it very modular in my opinion. Um, how I execute that, ton of work, no idea. Uh, but I am chipping away at that day by day. Um, so yeah, that's the current state of battle design. Recap, I'm using phases and programming as my turn structure. We're doing ruler movement instead of grid movement. We're gonna focus on the party as a whole, both in combat and in dungeon exploration. We're going to sh shift the lens of progression as numbers into progression as complexity and make it as modular as you can for the different class packages and role skeletons uh, that you can build those complexities on top of. Uh, I'll get into the more like resolution style systems in a different episode that's going to talk about my um, non-linking linked systems. <laughs> it's a very poor way to explain it. Uh, but you'll have to wait for that devlog to find out uh, what exactly the fuck I mean. Uh, as always, I've been Jeremy Gage. If you have any specific questions about what I talked about today and don't want to wait for the next devlog to come out, come join the Discord and ask me them. Because I am happy to engage and talk about the game with you. Uh, I'm also working on a Notion document that I'll be able to share that'll be sort of like wickified so you can like do backlinking and stuff and get hover overs and things. Um, and yeah. So yeah, at Jeremy Gage five over on Twitter or join the DYD or excuse me, not the DYD now it's the have you played this discord server and come chat with me about the game. Happy to get engaged about it. I'm happy to geek out about it. Happy to talk about other skirmish games or other issues you have with skirmish games. Maybe we can solve those problems together. Or maybe there's something you love about skirmish games that you'll miss in this version. I'd love to talk about it all. Uh, until next time, I've been Jeremy. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.